everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Beyond Prisons. I am one of your hosts, Brian Sonnenstein, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kim Wilson. How are you doing, Kim? I'm doing well. Hi, Brian. How's it going? I'm, it's going all right. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad we're getting this off the ground. Yeah, um, me too. So what Kim and I are trying to do is something a little bit different. Oh, my dogs are barking in the background. <laughs> okay. We're going to have dogs. We're going to have cats. We might have, you know, who knows what else is going to show up. So I, I say let's just roll with it. I know. It's fine. <laughs> but Kim and I decided to start this podcast uh, to talk about the issue of prison reform and mass incarceration uh, and offer some different perspectives than a lot of the things you hear going on uh, in the news right now. So I thought it would be good if we could introduce ourselves a little bit. Uh, Kim, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, well, I'll tell you a little bit about what my motivations were. Uh, and I think that that'll be a nice segue into my, my intro. Um, but the motivating factor behind, you know, me getting on board with this podcast really stemmed from, you know, a place of frustration. I'm frustrated with, uh, the policy choices, uh, around mass incarceration, around prisons specifically. And I'm seeing, you know, so many things that are impacting communities that I care about and that many people that I know live in. And I feel like we could be doing something better. And so I'm coming at it from that perspective. That said, on a personal level, I'm the mother of uh, two incarcerated men who are serving life in prison without the possibility of parole, or at least that was their sentence. My professional and academic interests in uh, incarceration began long before either of them had any encounter with uh, the criminal justice system. And I'm thinking of that in a broad sense, particularly you know when we talk about schools and a school to prison pipeline, which I'm sure we're gonna spend quite a bit of time talking about in later episodes. And then I'm also coming at this as an activist who started out you know, very much on board with prison reform and the, the prison reform movement, if you wanna call it that, and quickly evolved from that perspective to one of being strongly committed to prison abolition. So that's a little bit about me, where I'm coming from, and what I'm hoping this you know, podcast is going to be about. What about you, Brian? Well, so I am a journalist. I've been uh, writing about incarceration and the criminal justice system for about five years now. Um, and my work has primarily been to address these issues from the perspective of the people who are most directly impacted by it. And that's how I actually got to know you, Kim. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also deeply interested in the issue of prison abolition. Um, after having been an activist myself for a number of years on a number of issues from drug policy to whistleblowing, I've seen a lot of people have interactions with the system. None of them have been good, including you know friends of mine. I grew up in sort of a, a blue collar, very small town in New England. Saw a lot of people you know who fell into drugs and other problems wind up in the system, and it just destroyed not only their lives but the lives of their families and friends and just had a growing interest in this. And I'm very interested in the topic of reform. I'm also interested in critiquing reform, which is something we're gonna be talking a lot about here. Um, and we're also gonna to try to break away from sort of this large statistical view of incarceration where we're focusing on numbers. What we're gonna to try to do is bring perspectives from the people who are involved and use those to sort of guide our arguments about what the criminal justice system should be like. 
So why don't we talk about like the major narrative around mass incarceration? You know, maybe we can start by just critiquing that there. So I don't know, when you think about mass incarceration, what are some things that, that jump out to you? Like what are the things you know about it? You know, I'm coming at this from several different points of view and those things have deeply informed where I am today regarding uh, mass incarceration. I think that's, you know, an important thing to, to talk about because, again, as someone who was trained as a policy analyst, um, the policy perspective uh, or that school of thought really can, can be distilled in terms of uh, cost-benefit analysis. And I want, as you pointed out, for us to move beyond, you know, statistics and to think about the real issues, you know, to dig down deep into the racialized nature of mass incarceration, which is one of the things that, you know, jumps out to me. I mean, we know, I think it's important to address the numbers and to account for those, also to explain what those numbers mean in the context of people's lives, in the context of communities. How do those numbers translate into problems for the people who are behind the numbers, right? So I think that first and foremost, addressing the racialized nature of mass incarceration and more broadly what we refer to as the prison industrial complex. That's one of the main things that I want to talk about and that I don't feel is actually discussed enough in public policy circles. Now, that said, I think that there are public policy institutions that are doing this kind of research and that are publishing reports and white papers and what have you that do address the racialized nature of mass incarceration. But this doesn't actually seem to make it into the spaces where policymakers are <laughs> making decisions. And that gap right there um, really frustrates me. And it's something that's frustrated me for a really long time. We know, for example, that Black people are disproportionately represented in the system. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean in terms of communities? And I want to talk about that and to explore that. We know, you know, for example, that in terms of placing this in a global context, that the U.S. has uh, one of the largest prison populations in the world. So what does that mean? You know, and what does that look like on the ground? And what does that mean in the context of the politics of today? Because I don't think that we can really launch a podcast in 2017 and not talk about <laughs> the current political situation in this right. country. If that's not a source of frustration for people, I, I don't know what uh, what is. And it's certainly a major source of frustration uh, for me. Then there is the, the gender uh, component of mass incarceration. We tend to talk about, you know, men who are incarcerated, and particularly Black men, to the neglect and oversight of talking about women uh, and how those numbers have grown exponentially over the last, you know, decade and a half. Uh, and I think that that's an important piece that needs to be addressed as well. So there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about mass incarceration. I think that, you know, this is a good place to start. I'm also thinking about mass incarceration in, in broader terms. And this goes to the title of our podcast as well, you know, Beyond Prisons. I want us to imagine what that means. What does it mean to see something beyond prisons? Can we imagine 
a world, not only without prisons, but what are some of the creative solutions that we can come up with uh, through these conversations that are going to be, you know, I would say, uh, not only realistic, but that are necessary in light of, you know, the fact that we have, what, over 6 million people under correctional supervision in this country with about 2 million of those uh, incarcerated. So when we think about, you know, the, when I'm thinking about incarceration uh, in this country, I'm thinking of, about it in really broad terms. I'm thinking of, you know, policing. I'm thinking of surveillance. I'm thinking of all the various ways, the mechanisms that are used to control certain populations in this country, uh, particularly marginalized groups uh, in this country. What about you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, on a, on a very basic level, one of the things I want to do is talk about what we, you know, what we as Americans, by and large, think prisons do, who goes there, what happens there. I mean, this includes, you know, even through the lens of the reform movement. But you know, as as activists, when we're thinking about policy that we could be implementing, and if we're thinking about what comes next after prison, I think one of the most important things that we can do is have conversations that could lead to sort of a cultural shift among people that will sort of lay a stronger foundation for these policies. And I think we can get there, um, you know, as you know, you know, prisons and the system in general are largely out of the public view attempts to, I know this as a journalist, you know, this as um, both a scholar and um, a parent, but you know, any attempts to sort of get more information about the system or to question actions by officials, you, you know, you get the silent treatment or worse, I think in order to really lay the groundwork for a lot of this policy, we need to have conversations and clear some things out about punishment and about crime and about safety and the role of prisons in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I think there's, there's this idea that uh, people uh, are criminals instead of do things that are against the law um, or, or maybe have low moments. I think there's this idea that, you know, when you go away to prison, um, you know, you deserve harsh treatment and certain things as punishment. And there's no sort of thought as to the fact that these people are eventually going to get out. They're going to have to reintegrate into society under even more difficult situations than the average person, you know, trying to get a job out there today uh, when you sort of have the scarlet letter of a, of a conviction mm -hmm. uh, hanging over you. And so, you know, I just, what I hope that we can do uh, as well, in addition to all the things that you said, I totally agree with, um, in addition to getting into, you know, the various issues uh, that go on in prison and at the front and the back end, you know, before people go in and after, I just really want to, I want to sort of challenge our assumptions. And I want us to get, I want us to really think about the myriad costs uh, that are associated with decisions that we make, and, you know, with punishment. And, you know, even on just a, on a sort of basic and theoretical level, we talk about prison sentences, right? Like people, uh, there's a lot of talk about sentencing reform, um, but we attach arbitrary, arbitrary years on prison sentences. I mean, there really is no science behind a lot of this. And it's just interesting to think, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I hear people on the left and, and, you know, liberals are always talking about how, oh, you know, the Republicans are so anti-science. Well, the truth is that, as a society, you know, we have this looming uh, system that is very pseudoscientific and very anti-scientific. 
mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and so these are sort of the ideas and little things that we want to chip away at. We're going to bring guests on to talk about these things. And a lot of the things that you and I are going to chat about today, we're going to gloss over a lot of things. We're going to mention a lot of things, but trust that in coming episodes, we will dig into these issues deeper. So what else? Uh, what else should we talk about here? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, playing off of those points that you just made about prison, one of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about as I was preparing for this episode today was, you know, uh, something that Angela Davis writes about in uh, Our Prisons Obsolete. And she says, you know, stop thinking of prisons as inevitable. Right. Mm -hmm. So we think of uh, the prison as, you know, this natural thing uh, and that we can't imagine life without it. And I think that, you know, again, our name captures that. But our approach to what we're attempting to do with these conversations is to think about, you know, what what is life without a prison? It's not some, you know, uh, utopian ideal. It's not some, you know, it's not politically naive to talk about a world without prisons, a society mm -hmm. without prisons. Um, and the difficulty that, you know, I've encountered in my work with people, including a lot of liberals, it's mostly, you know, liberals who, mm -hmm. who I've been working with uh, around, you know, issues of prison abolition, that anytime I, I, I say, okay, imagine a world without prisons, what does that society look like? The first thing I hear is, oh, well, no, 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 you can't possibly mean you want to get rid of prisons. And, and again, like I said, this really is super, super frustrating because, you know, it's not even, yeah, I, I'm, I said, I'm giving you a magic wand. You can make the world whatever you want it to be, right? It's like, it's a, a theoretical exercise in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. it, and people don't even want to imagine that world. Why right? do you think that is? Like, why do you think people, uh, you know, I have my own thoughts on this, obviously, but I, I'm curious of your thoughts of why people are sort of resistant to the idea of even sort of having that radical imagination. Well, I think, I, I think a lot of people are afraid. Right. I think that there's a lot of fear that, you know, they, they watch these television shows, they see things, you know, depicted in the media and presented a certain way. And their sort of fantasy about what someone in prison looks like or is capable of is informed by these things. Mm -hmm. Right. And they, they don't necessarily even if they have an experience with uh, someone who's been to prison, they, they tend to have this wall up like, okay, well, I like the idea of improving conditions for people in prison, but what are you talking about? Like, this is just going a little too far. You can't really be talking about, you know, getting rid of prisons. And I'm like, actually I am. Right. right? So institutions, where we put people in cages, you know, for long periods of time without any consideration as to what that is doing to someone is a problem. It's problematic. And, you know, we need to have, I'm fond of saying, you know, the courage, um, the backbone, like we need strong backs to be able to say, this is wrong, right? This is right. wrong. And how do we disrupt this system? How do we change this system? How how can we make something that's different from what we have now, right? Not just substituting and moving things around or, you know, they say rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? So, you know, really, I mean, <laughs> that's it's a perfect, like, yeah. 
you know, uh, just a couple of days ago, de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio of New York announced that, you know, they, they're closing down Rikers. And that's great. And I'm cheering for the fact that, you know, Rikers was a really shitty place. It was a horrible place by all accounts. And, you know, it needed to be closed. However, what he's proposing is setting up new prisons. Right. Right. So for me, and this is where I, I have to depart with the reform movement, substitutes for prison, you know, including other prisons, doesn't really help the issue. It doesn't address, you know, the social, the economic, the political problems that have created the issues that we have regarding mass incarceration. And I think until we get to that, you know, until we get to that point where we can, I mean, good grief, have a conversation about what a world without prisons could look like. Um, and to move people just a tiny little bit to say, okay, what what does transforming this society? How do we deal with the really scary things, right? Okay, so someone's committed murder, someone's, you know, been raped, and you know, these are horrible things. And how do we address the victims' uh, legitimate, you know, concerns here, while also addressing what is happening in terms of incarceration that we know doesn't actually act as a deterrent, right? So, and it doesn't work. So what do we do about this, right? So yeah. we, we need a better way to approach this. And I, I'm thinking of, you know, this podcast and our conversations as a way to explore various approaches to, you know, to what that landscape would look like. I'm looking at it also in terms of, you know, how do we challenge white supremacy, you know, as part of this project? I see a lot of talk about prisons and carcerality that want to leave out, you know, the the race component. And mm -hmm. that's one of the hangups, I think, that, that we have and that we confront, particularly in terms of policy making and policy choices that are being made because these policies around prison are meant to appear race neutral and they're not right so we need right. to have not only a language but a process by which we can assess and analyze and understand what a racialized you know carceral system is and what do we do about that I agree. I completely agree. And I think that there's a lot of danger in compartmentalizing reform efforts instead of taking these broader approaches like abolition. I mean, there's, there's my head is spinning. There's so many things I want to say in response to what you just <laughs> yeah, said. Right? Uh, I mean, one thing I want to say is that I think for people who don't really, they don't know what prison abolition is. They've never heard of it. Maybe they, they have somewhat of an idea. I think one of the, the helpful ways to think about this too is that um, you know, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to prisons, much the same way that the one-size-fits-all solution of prisons doesn't work for the justice system, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, when we're talking about getting rid of prisons, you know, like you said, we're not talking about replacing it with a different kind of prison. You know, I really resent a lot of this talk of like, oh, let's look over to like Sweden and see how awesome it is to be a prisoner in Sweden, like, I think that's totally the wrong way to look at prisons. It's a, also a hard conversation, I think, and I wonder if you ever butt up against this, Kim, 
the the needs like the problems are so bad in for people who are incarcerated mm -hmm. that the needs are very immediate right so i'm not sitting here saying like you know we shouldn't you know we shouldn't support these reform efforts that look to to increase the quality of life of prisoners because we need to help people right now mm -hmm. right? but we can't do that at the expense of like a broader vision mm -hmm. i think i see a lot in in these reform efforts of you know we will reduce you know, we'll, we'll show greater leniency to low-level nonviolent offenders, uh, and at the same time, we're going to increase penalties and introduce new penalties for uh, for violent offenders uh, mm -hmm. or or for other drug crimes, like they talked about with the you know they talked about introducing a new fentanyl mandatory minimum sentence in the last criminal justice reform bill, um, and it probably will be added to this one, I would imagine, with Republicans in control of the legislature, but. Uh, another thing that I want to say that uh, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I was just thinking about your comment is a lot of times what we see in reform is uh, euphemism mm -hmm. is is just is uh, used in order to make it look like things are changing or to like very modestly or slightly tweak a prisoner's experience. But mm -hmm. the abuse and like the fundamental issue uh, of why of why a certain thing in prison is bad remains the same. So for example, with solitary confinement, you know, we, we say the solitary confinement is torture. You know, it's, I think it's pretty widely accepted now that solitary confinement is torture. And uh, at the same time, the reforms we get are, you know, maybe two extra hours out of your cell a week. And like reformers call that a victory. Uh, when really, or, or, you know, only certain groups of people are not allowed to go into solitary confinement mm -hmm. or, they're, or they're open a new housing unit that is basically solitary confinement and everything but name. And so it's really tricky. And that's another reason why I think it's important to consider abolition and to take it seriously, because a lot of these problems, uh, you know, we're at where we are today because politicians have been kicking the can on these issues ever since We've had prisons. I mean, Attica, you know, the reform efforts followed Attica. Uh, you know, rebellions have been going on for years and years and years, um, and things haven't gotten materially better. Um, I think when we think about abolition, another thing to think about is not only like, like you were saying, like, what do we, how do we change how we think about, you know, somebody who's committed an act of murder or an act of rape? How do we think about justice? But it's also like, what the prison and the, the system that we have set up does nothing to sort of head off these things from happening mm -hmm. by changing the material conditions and the environments and the social context, the racial context, like you're talking about, that people live in that limit their options and push them in to, you know, like sort of silo their paths mm -hmm. in life. Um, and so it's not just like, what, what can we do differently when somebody commits a crime, but it's like, how can we invest in communities, all the money that we spend on federal, state, local jails, all that money could be so much better put to use with education, jobs, healthcare, you know, in society in ways that would reduce the number of people winding up behind bars. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, to, to your first point uh, regarding reforms and, you know, changing things uh, in the immediate and, you know, what you were saying about looking to sort of European models of, you know, prisons and whatnot. And I think, you know, there's there's a space for having um, a comparative analysis of, you know, what are other countries doing that are better than what's happening here in the U.S. and that, you know, 
if it improves the conditions of people on the inside, okay, great. However, um, what an abolitionist perspective actually does is that it provides a framework for understanding and placing, you know, that, okay, short term, okay, conditions have been improved, you know, right now. However, the long-term goal is not to just sit back and say, yay, we improved conditions, but how do we not use prisons as an anchor for the problems that are happening in society? How do we, you know, what other things can we use? And you mentioned some of those things, investing in communities, providing health care, mental health. Mental health is such a big part of this problem, not criminalizing, you know, uh, drugs and, you know, uh, and, and these other things seen don't actually improve safety or security, but are used as the pretext for, you know, increasing uh, the, the carceral state. So I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, we're going to do and, you know, we'll probably do this in an uh, upcoming episode is really delve into uh, what do we mean by uh, prison abolition, right? And we can, you know, today we can probably just give a very quick definition mm -hmm. of that, a working definition so that people have that. Um, and to talk a little bit about what we mean when we say prison industrial complex uh, and, you know, so that we understand the language that's being used here, because I think that particularly <laughs> in this day and age, particularly in this political climate, that our words matter um, mm -hmm. and our words matter more than they have in the past. So, you know, providing clear definitions, uh, I think, gives us a sort of a place to begin, right? It may not improve or increase understanding very much, but at least it gives us a place to begin so that we know that we're talking about, you know, this thing over here and not that thing over there. Um, you know, that yeah, said, I mean, one of the things that I think about, you know, when I talk about prison abolition and again, using a lot of, you know, Angela Davis's work, uh, using the work of people from critical resistance, as well as insight uh, and a number of other groups, is to really think about it as a, a political vision, right? To think about, you know, how prison abolition constitutes, you know, a set of long-term goals, that there are things that we're doing right now. However, the goal is to eliminate, you know, to get rid of imprisonment, to get rid of policing and surveillance as the mechanisms that we use to address social problems. And, and I think that that's really the most concrete way of, of putting it and in really simple terms. And it sounds easy, you know, but once we started unpacking that, I think that there's just so much happening in that, right? So that framework includes things. It's, it's for me, at least, um, the, the framework of abolition is also, you know, anti-racist. Uh, it is, you know, when we talk about uh, gender disparities, uh, we're including uh, trans rights. We're talking about things like immigration policy. We're talking about all of these things that are happening right now and the kinds of policies that are being implemented by, you know, this administration that work against an abolitionist framework and why I feel a sense of urgency now more than I have, I think, before. And I I think I've had a 
sense of urgency for a long time. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? No, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, we really need to have goals. And I think, I think a lot of uh, what's happening in the prison reform movement um, and even just sort of larger, you know, on the left, uh, I think you see it's a little different when you talk about something like single payer healthcare, for instance. Like, I think we need to have these goals that even if they seem politically unfeasible in this moment, we have to have something to work toward in order to, like you said, like provide a framework for what we're doing, not only so that we don't shut off any avenues to, to like fully realizing reform or anything like that, but just so that we're like going somewhere with this, Mm -hmm. right? This is the work of movements. I mean, you know, we may not see this in our lifetime. Uh, You know, a lot of people who I talk to about abolition for the first time, uh, you know, they kind of scoff at you. They're like, yeah, right. There's no way that would ever happen. But I mean, you know, there's all sorts of issues that that such a that such transformation has happened on in our lifetimes and i've you know the prison is such a fundamental institution in our society that obviously it's much bigger than than any one issue mm-hmm. but i think like you know i think something you were touching on or, or something that it made me think about when you were talking is that uh if you can if you bring an abolitionist framework to this it it does inform the way you look at other policies mm-hmm. in other areas of, of governance and society instead of sort of just being content to fiddle with whatever uh problems are going on it makes you want to investigate the root causes more to question the system more you know it also gives you sort of more empathy uh in a way you know i feel like even the worst political foes that i that i could imagine um i definitely want to like understand more about why they are the way they are mm-hmm. uh, not as a means to like excuse their behavior but just sort of as like a strategy instead of a lot of this like you know i feel so much of like political fighting and everything today is like very in the moment and lacks like a broader context so mm-hmm. so anyway i think you know i think abolition is is something that uh, you know, if there were ever a good time to talk about it, as it, it would be now with things as awful as they are. I mean, I feel like we almost have more space to talk about abolition than we might have had, you know, a few years ago. Um, Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, again, uh, one of the, the things that I, I wrote down in my notes in, in preparation for, for today had to do with reforms. And one of the things that Angela Davis says is that, you know, the idea of reforms doesn't go beyond the prison, right? Mm -hmm. So if all of your solutions begin and end with prisons, then there's really no room for alternatives in that reform model. And that's the problem that I have as an abolitionist with, you know, the reform movement is that all of the solutions maintain these carceral institutions. So whether we're talking about house arrest or surveillance, uh, parole, probation, you know, what have you, it's not really an alternative. You're kind of trying to give something a different look without doing much about the actual problem. And this resonates with people. This is very appealing. And again, I mean, this is, you know, for me, this is extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating because again, you know, as a, as someone who was trained in in policy and uh, public policy 
research and, and what have you. The literature really approaches mass incarceration from those perspectives, right? So when we're writing policy documents, you know, when we're, uh, they're doing evaluations of, you know, it could be reentry programs, for example, there are really no alternatives that are being presented that are not carceral alternatives. And that, for me, you know, has been part of the problem for years, right? Totally. That, that for me, just really uh, the, the aha moment or the lead up to the aha moment, if, if we can, you know, even call it that, came a number of years ago, you know, where it was just, it was evident, right? That the further I dug down into, you know, reentry and what was happening, you know, in communities with people returning from prison to certain communities that there's a pattern there, right? And that pattern is repeated over and over and over again, you know, across communities in this country. So the policies weren't working, right? But it wasn't enough to just say, okay, the policies aren't working. What is actually happening here? What is informing these policies? And I think that that was, you know, where I really started to go into the abolitionist literature because the public policy literature doesn't discuss abolition, right? It, right. it completely, you know, neglects it. Abolition is, is something that, you know, if you're a political theorist that we're talking about, you know, abolition from that perspective and, you know, people are writing brilliant things about Foucault and what have you. Um, but that information, that knowledge doesn't transfer over to the public policy space. Definitely. So <laughs> how do we bring these things together. And it's not just, you know, political theorists, but philosophers and, you know, other people who are doing work on prison abolition, not just theoretical, but practical work as well. Uh, how do we bring that knowledge to bear on policy choices so that in the choosing, because people talk about public policy in a sort of disconnected way in this thing that's happening, you know, somewhere in Washington and in the halls of, you know, state capitals and what have you, as some kind of mysterious process. Well, no, people are making decisions, right? And those decisions are informed by people's values, people's understanding of the problem, um, et cetera, et cetera. And if we're not attempting to understand that part of it in terms of, you know, what's happening with so many people and disproportionately black and brown people in this country going to prison, then we're actually not being honest about trying to address what is happening here. What we're doing is something else, but it, it, it's not rooted in an honest intellectual project, right? right. That is going to give us uh, public policies that improve the conditions for communities and for the people living in those communities. And I think that, you know, for me, that's one of the, um, the strengths of an abolitionist perspective. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, in my activism, in my, you know, scholarship and in my, you know, personal life that I have, you know, really committed to understanding in a lot of different ways. And I think that, 
you know, it presents a lot of challenges. It's it's a difficult task to be an abolitionist. It's it's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's not an easy thing, you know, to say that uh, publicly. It's uh, an even more difficult thing when you know if you write about these issues and you you know are facilitating workshops and conversations with people around these things. They always want to talk down to you and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tell you that you're misinformed somehow and that, you know, letting people out of prison is just going to ruin society. And I'm like, uh, have you read the paper? I mean, have you looked around? I mean, (laughs) you know, and and Angela Davis says this all the time. I mean, she says, you know, um, not having any prisons would actually improve things, right? Right. Just like no alternative would be better than having prisons. And that really gets people's backs up. They they can't handle that, you know? And, and I think to your point earlier about trying to understand where people are coming from with that, I think that's an important piece of the overall puzzle in, in conversation here. And I'm looking forward to these conversations as the podcast unfolds and, you know, as we get deeper into these things, so. Yeah, and I just think, you know, one last thing I'll say on this, uh, you know, to your discussion, your discussion of policymaking and sort of people's, you know, like you were saying, arching their back sort of at a lot of this stuff. I think it speaks to a lot of, you know, the political incentives that end up shaping reform and that need to change and that hopefully conversations like the ones that we're going to have on this podcast can help change. Um, Because it's really hard, you know, I mean, you have to admit on a certain level, I think that it's hard for policymakers to go out and, you know, maybe put out a reform that would reduce the number of violent offenders in prison, because all it takes is one violent offender to make the news to cause a political backlash to that. Um, And I think the way, you know, I think because of that, you know, the, the incentives are so stacked to be harsher, whereas like the the political gain for for showing leniency is so unfortunately low, you know, and I think we need to completely invert that uh, and and sort of show, you know, politicians, these political figures, including like prosecutors, you know, uh, to a certain degree, they're followers, right? They're going to take cues from the public in terms of what the public will support and what the public won't support. And so, you know, I do see the tide changing a little bit in terms of how people view offenders. You know, obviously it's like a very niche group of offenders are given yeah. leniency right now, but I but I I'm it's hopeful in the sense that it could, you know, if we can have these conversations and get people to think differently, we can change those political incentives so that the there's less of a risk for a politician to craft a policy or sign on to a policy uh, that would decarcerate and that that politicians won't so strongly overreact to, you know, public to, to, to rises in crime and, and the public, you know, doesn't um, prioritize, you know, the safety of some communities at the expense of others. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, um, you know, the, the, this whole thing about who we let out of prison and what what's an acceptable kind of you know um level i think of criminality i mean if we're aiming for zero crime in society we're neglecting the fact that we're dealing with human beings right so we need to talk about that 
right? We need to address that on the front end. And I, I don't see where politicians do this very effectively. And I'm sure we'll, you know, certainly critique uh, the the politicians' approach to, you know, public policy around, you know, incarceration and what have you. But, you know, we don't have a world where we will be crime-free. That world actually doesn't exist, right? So a world without prisons is possible. A world without crime, I'm not so sure, right? right. <laughs> so I think that, you know, but how do we handle that crime what what do we what constitutes a crime right so it's you know we have you know all sorts of examples you know currently in the news where you know, defending yourself against you know a domestic abuser is considered a crime right so right. that's a problem right and what what do we want to do with that i mean are do, are we really what we're really saying to victims of violence is well, you know, we don't care about you. If you tried to defend yourself, then you're really the problem. And how has that changed anything for that community, for that person, for their family or anything like that? So I think we need to move beyond the surface level analysis that is really popular and to, you know, talk about the complexities involved with letting people, and not just opening the doors and letting people run out of prison and what have you. We're, we're talking about, you know, a more thoughtful approach to decarceration, right. to getting rid of, you know, cages. Uh, we're talking about, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, providing people with health care uh, in, you know, for me, particularly mental health and, you know, what that would do. I mean, we know that there's a, a large population, a large proportion of the incarcerated population uh, has a documented mental illness. Mm -hmm. That's a problem, right? That's a problem. And if our approach to, you know, these issues is basically, you know, just lock them up for some indefinite amount of time, don't provide them with any kind of, you know, counseling or support while they're incarcerated, that somehow through the sort of, you know, isolation and solitary monastic existence, that these people are going to have, you know, some kind of aha moment and magically come out being okay. I mean, that's what I mean. Yeah, like when I when I was saying earlier, you know, that I I just feel like incarceration is so anti-science. I mean, listening to the way you just described it, I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous. And, and we have it, at this point, we have mountains of evidence showing how incarceration harms. And I would argue we have very little evidence uh, suggesting that incarceration as as an end in itself works to do anything other than perpetuate misery. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, sorry, I just, I wanted to chime in no, there because it just, it always baffles me. You know, we, we cling to this institution so strongly, but it, it's, it's complete pseudoscience, you know, the more, the more that you dig into it. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's, a, you know, a valid point. And we need to talk about that more, not just, you know, uh, on here, but also in, in the context of public policy choices that right. are being made. I mean, targeting specific groups of people. I mean, to put people in prison who have drug problems makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. You don't actually change the conditions 
for that individual by putting them in prison, right? Not just putting them in prison, but putting them in a cage and not giving them any kind of assistance. You know, like these things don't happen, you know, they don't just fall out of the sky and all of a sudden they walk out of prison and they're going to magically never use again. And that seems to be the sort of approach, you know, towards uh, carcerality here. Again, why reforms are a huge problem because it relies on this notion that if you lock someone up, you know, and you take away everything that is meaningful to them, that is of value to them, you know, their ties to the community, no matter how strained those ties are, their ties to their family, no matter how difficult that family might be, those are still ties that we're basically cutting off and saying, okay, we're going to remove you from society, from everything that is near and dear to you, and now we're expecting you to be okay. Right, right. So when you come out, you should be, you know, ready to conquer the world. And then we set up this system of obstacles for a person who's returning from prison, you know, into the community. And we say, well, you need to follow all these rules. OK, so you go to prison from a community where, you know, most of the people that, you know, have also gone to prison. But we have laws in this country that prevent the association of people, you know, with a felony conviction from associating, right? So that right. could end you, you know, get you back into prison. It, that's just so ridiculous. Who else would you know? It's like if your parent, you know, went to prison and you're their, you know, child and you also went to prison, we're basically saying, well, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, cousin, whatever the, you know, uh, ties are, you can't be around each other. So now we're basically undermining, you know, the support system that would be there by making the association a criminal act. Right. right? <laughs> and it's like, God. Yeah. I mean, there's so right. much. There's so How much. How is this supposed to work? Yeah. I, and I mean, I think one of the things that, that, you know, another thing that we all are going to need to talk about are, and it's, it's going to be hard, uh, you know, given just American culture in general, but are, are, are these limits of personal, uh, of individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, you were talking about earlier, uh, you know, a lot of the way that carcerality sort of bleeds in and, you know, punitive structures sort of bleed into post-release and things like that. And you were talking about drug treatment programs and things like that. You know, even in, in that situation, let's take drug treatment programs, for instance. A lot of, a lot of these programs are 12-step programs mm-hmm. that are built around the individual, basically accepting full responsibility for their actions, making no excuses uh, outside of themselves, and supposedly being able to stay sober with that as sort of their backing. And, and the truth of it is that there are limits to personal responsibility for for somebody like that. I mean, if you live in a context in which drugs are always around, say, or, or you know, maybe you have a chronic health issue and that's how maybe you became addicted to opioids. I mean, taking responsibility like that is just another, it's, it's like another one of these examples of sort of puritanical 
anti-science approach mm -hmm. that is like disproved by you know incredible amounts of evidence but we're going to need to really sort of as americans dial back our desire to pin a hundred percent total responsibility on people who commit crimes and i and i just want to i think this is a good time to talk about something uh in terms of abolition too kim and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on this when we talk about prison abolition and you said this earlier in a way like we're not just talking about letting people out of prison like we need to you know there, there still will be accountability after mm -hmm. prison, right? There still will be justice. Yeah. It, hopefully it won't look like this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that we need to talk about and explore new forms of justice, right? So the, the whole theater of, uh, that's associated when someone gets sentenced and, you know, to, to a long prison term is, one of the problems and i obviously experienced that with uh with my sons right and you know this this idea that somehow justice was being served in that context um what it just felt so it it's painful and it's still painful today you know to think back on on this and part of what that does is i think it creates further divisions and within communities because we're all in this together yeah. right we're all in this together and as you said you know a lot of the american ethos of individual responsibility and resiliency and you know this kind of you can do it and i built it myself and i didn't need any help and you know it's not my responsibility to take care of you etc cetera, etc cetera, you know which is at the core of you know uh american society and people really really believe that uncritically believe that right they don't right. examine th what they say around you know resiliency and individual responsibility at all and we have you know um it's i think uh consequences yeah medical models that you know <laughs> that, that are informed by this perspective a lot of you know probation and parole is informed by this perspective a lot of reentry programs are uh based on you know on these perspectives and the need to rely on personal transformation strategies as the approach the the preferred approach to dealing with crime and to dealing with problems that you know people's problems right because we i think we conflate that we make people their problems and we don't separate the two we don't say okay this person has a problem we say these people are a problem right, right? so drug users are a problem not okay wait a minute let's think about what is actually happening here and as, as you pointed out i mean that we're living in a really unscientific, you know, time. The the lack of critical thinking around these things, or um, willingness to approach this from a scientifically informed perspective, um, is I think another huge issue that we're probably going to talk about in one way or another throughout every conversation that we have because it's there. It's there. It's part of every single issue. Um, and to, you know, to, to lay blame at uh, an individual's feet, right? So uh, one of the 
things that I, I say um, quite a bit is that, you know, when we individualize, we moralize, right? It makes it really easy to moralize. We can do a lot of finger wagging and we can say, oh, you need to get your act together. You need to stop doing drugs. You need to stop doing this. And, you know, we, we're very much invested in this notion of choice, right? The individual cho chose this path as opposed to this other path. And when we do that, what we're doing is obscuring the fact that there are conditions and that there's a system in place that, you know, perpetuates these conditions that constrain your choices. Yep. So if you can't eat, right, because you don't have a job and because you can't go to your mama's house because of whatever reason, because there are federal policies that prevent you from crashing on her couch because she lives in HUD housing or something right you know right. ridiculous like that and you're back on the street you know <laughs> i mean what would you do because i think exactly. about it you know i think about that quite often and i'm like i would do whatever i need to do to eat yeah i would do whatever i need to do to survive and you know i i live in la i have been in you know supermarkets out here uh where i've seen people arrested who are hungry you know, they're coming in and they're, you know, they're stealing a loaf of bread or something, you know, small like that. And the police are called because that's the system that we have. And instead of the manager or someone there just giving them the damn loaf of bread um, and keeping it moving, you know, it's like, no, we have to call the police. Now you yeah. have another set of problems there. Right. So I think that yeah, part of our, you know, part of what I'm hoping we'll do, uh, is to unpack that a little bit more in a you know in a more critical way and to bring people on as guests who can discuss these issues uh, in you know a really well informed uh, way to get us to think about about this stuff beyond you know the superficial beyond the sort of knee jerk reaction to you know even petty crime but that said, I also feel that we need to talk about violent crime. And Absolutely. that without a conversation or a set of conversations about violent criminals, that we're we would be doing a disservice, you know, to 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 what we're saying we want to do uh, with this podcast. I think that we need to address you know, what happens when, you know, when the unthinkable happens uh, and how do we, how do we deal with that? How do we address that? How can, you know, communities come together? What does a justice model look like that, you know, says, okay, well, there may be, you know, it, it, we need to, we need to talk about that more. We need to address the fears that people have and discuss ways that, someone who has committed a really horrific crime can be held accountable, right? Yeah. It doesn't produce more harm, right? It doesn't yeah. perpetuate, you know, the, the pain uh, that already exists because I don't think, you know, and speaking from my own experience, the, the pain doesn't go away, right? The pain is, uh, you know, when, when something horrible happens in, you know, in your family with crime and, you know, uh, and what have you, uh, that pain doesn't leave. It doesn't get better with time. It is just as fresh today 
as it was the day that it happened. And I think that that's something, you know, uh, for me on a personal level that I want to talk about more and to bring in, you know, families that have been impacted in these ways by, you know, by crime and on, on both sides. Uh, that, that I think that, you know, that's that's an important conversation to have and something that, you know, in, in transformative ju- justice circles and restorative justice circles uh, has been happening for a lot of years and there are ways to approach those conversations. Um, but we can't do that until we talk about accountability. But if right. accountability is happening in very narrow terms of lock, lock them up and throw away the key, that doesn't cohere with an abolitionist perspective. And yeah, well, you know, as you can see, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about. There is no shortage of topics here. I mean, I think we, we barely scratched the surface today. Um, And I, I, I'm excited about what we can do, you know, with, uh, with this podcast. And uh, I don't know, do you have uh, any additional thoughts? There's, well, there's just one more thing that I wanted to bring up and I, and I want to, you know, I, I'm curious what you think about this too. You know, I think a lot of times when people bring up these arguments, somebody might say to you, you know, well, Kim, what about the victims? Uh, What about the people who the crimes are perpetrated against? You know, don't you think that they deserve uh, our empathy too? Uh, And, you know, I, I don't know what you would say. I would certainly say I think our system is not designed at all right now to show, to really empower victims in any meaningful way outside of, uh, punishment. I think, you know, prosecutors by and large uh, aren't really interested in what a victim's family uh, or what a victim uh, would like to do. Uh, you know, I wrote about earlier this year that uh, the vast majority of crime victims, including violent crime victims, would prefer rehabilitation over incarceration. There's a lot of myths that, uh, you know, and and I would also say that maybe a lot of people wouldn't be victims uh, if we if we didn't have incarceration and we're addressing these root causes. So that was that was really the last thing that I want to bring up. I, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, some of the things that might come to your mind when you're thinking about prison abolition for the first time, um, sort of these ingrained defenses that we have as Americans uh, against, you know, imagining a world without prisons. Like you said, a lot of this we will be digging in uh, very deeply on all these subjects with guests, and I'm very, very excited. And so, yeah, you know, we want to know uh, what questions you have, so please get in touch with us. Um, you can email me at brian at shadowproof.com. Uh, we'll be happy to sort of take tips from people, I think, and, and sort of hear how people react to the show and a lot of the ideas we have. And, uh, you know, honestly, I want to hear sort of what problems people have with a lot of these ideas, because I think these are you know, a lot of these conversations are going to be really uncomfortable for a lot of people. They're going to be really difficult. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about violence and, and sexual offenses and things like this that are, uh, we're, we're just sort of, we react to in a certain way. But we need to have these conversations if we're really going to make a meaningful impact on this issue. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So what about you, Kim? Do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, 
there are a number of victims groups around the country um, that have uh, been very outspoken against things like the death penalty uh, and what have you. And I've been working with uh, some groups, uh, some people in Delaware uh, around this as well, whose families have been, um, you know, the, the victims of violent crimes. Uh, and it, it's it's a difficult conversation, but I can tell you from my own experience, uh, talking with these families is, you know, they are, they have been out front of the death penalty abolition movement. Um, and they have, you know, uh, said things, you know, like not in their name, you know, like you can't kill someone because you lost someone, you know, in, in their name and this notion of state sanctioned violence as a way to um, met out justice uh, is, is deeply problematic for a lot of people. I think not just on a moral level because they do believe that it's wrong, but for in terms of what this actually does, right? What, what does this actually do? It, it doesn't feel good. But then again, I mean, I, I think that the people who are best able to talk about this, you know, issue are the victims, right? And that I don't want to speak for anyone, uh, that if anything, you know, uh, another goal that I have for this podcast is really to amplify, you know, marginalized people's voices and to let people speak for themselves rather than talking over them or for them. So, uh, you know, you'll hear me say a lot that, you know, uh, I'm speaking for myself and what have you, because I think that needs to be clear that I'm not talking for other other folks here. I think that, you know, in general, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing, you know, what people have to say. Uh, I think that, you know, these are courageous conversations that we need to have, uh, that they're going to require us to have really strong backs to uh, to address. We'll certainly, you know, give people trigger warnings around, uh, you know, certain issues. And, you know, there might be a trigger warning around the entire podcast. I mean, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> You know, and that includes, you know, just as much for my own benefit as, as for anybody else's because, right. you know, the, the, this isn't easy. You know, this isn't easy. And I'm, I'm on board with this project because it, it gives me a way to sort of channel all of this energy that I have uh, and to, you know, bring this, uh, this work to a much bigger audience and, and to include a lot more people. Uh, in this conversation. Um, and before I forget, you know, if, if people want to contact me, I'm at WilsonK68, that's the number 68, at gmail.com. Uh, and, you know, I look forward to hearing about, you know, what people have to say and, you know, if they want to chime in and have ideas for, you know, future topics, um, it certainly open uh, to these things. Hate mail, you can send somewhere else. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, in, in the hate mail and in, uh, you know, abusive uh, nonsense that I'm sure we're going to, you know, oh, yes. get as a result of, you know, putting ourselves out there on, on these issues. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, 
This has been great. I mean, I, yeah. I've enjoyed this conversation. I think that, you know, it was a lot easier than I thought, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. Well, I'm really glad uh, to be doing this with you, Kim. Um, so thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we will have another episode out soon. You can subscribe to us uh, on iTunes, uh, Beyond Prisons. And stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.